Welcome back to Talk Green to Me, a podcast about materials and sustainability. This week, we have a follow-up to our episode on plastic bag recycling. Joining us is Trent Romer, a sustainability expert who has spent over 30 years in the plastic bag manufacturing industry. His latest book, This Is Our Home, provides insight into taking personal action in the fight towards a greener planet and future. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is uh, Trent Romer. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to have a conversation. I love this this space. My background is really in a family-owned and operated business. I grew up in one, and uh, my grandfather began it back in 1961. Uh, my father owned uh, our plastic bag manufacturing business for the next 20 years. Then my brother and I owned the business for the next 20 years. And then somewhere in the 2010s, 2015 area, I became increasingly concerned about the product that we made being plastic. Um, and I sort of moved in a more sustainable direction for our business and uh, for me personally. Ultimately, our company was bought by a private equity company. And now I work as a consultant in sustainability for, for that business. So uh, very much tied to our, our family business and uh, as it's uh, grown uh, over the years and trying to move it in a more sustainable direction, especially in the last five to six years. Awesome. So can you describe the plastic bags that your family company made? So plastic is made out of these small little resin pellets that are melted and then blown into material as at the extruder. And that material is shipped to a converter. Like I mentioned, the, the business began in 1961, and my father took over the business for 20, 25 years after uh, my grandfather. My father's one of 11, and I have 32 first cousins. So the business has grown up really very much a family-owned and operated business. Currently, the business employs 70 people, and we are a converter, um, meaning we don't make plastic. We bring in uh, rolls of material, rolls of plastic, and then convert it to size. We will print on it or put a Ziploc on it or tape it. So think about carrot bags or celery bags, apple bags, or a mailer you may get um, from Amazon. That's uh, the custom conversion that we, we do. Could you tell us maybe some advantages to using plastic? You know, if there is such a big problem with recycling it or end of life, why is it something that's still being used so much? Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about it, you you start to realize how versatile plastic is and the cost is very low and the lightweighting of, of plastic. So think about a plastic bag or a plastic package compared to a box or a glass jar or a, a hard plastic tub. Um, that lightweighting produces less emissions in production, uh, in transportation. Food safety uh, has a big flexible packaging, has a lot to do with keeping our food safe, elongating shelf life uh, and product safety. Think about uh, mayonnaise. So mayonnaise used to come in a glass jar. Uh, then it progressed to more of a plastic tub. And nowadays you'll find a lot of mayonnaise in a flexible packaging where it uh, stands up on its cap. Uh, so the cap acts like it's like a tube of toothpaste. And what that allows you to do is use all of the contents when, within that um, flexible package 
versus um, a jar. A lot of times when you open a jar of mayonnaise, you're exposing it to oxygen and then you're, you're uh, risking spoilage. So um, the, the flexible nature are, is lighter, it's cheaper, it's easier to use. Uh, and I think that's why, um, you know, the sort of the world in a lot of ways has gravitated toward sort of flexible packaging uh, to take advantage of that. So when did you start noticing or hearing about this anti-plastic sentiment among people? And then what inspired you to sort of take action to be more sustainable? I think for me, I started to begin to feel uneasy somewhere in the 2014, 2015 area where you began to feel the, the weight of some media attention given to flexible packaging that's finding its way increasingly into the natural environment. But what really pushed me over the edge was the June 2018 cover of the National Geographic. The image on the cover was a plastic bag sticking out of the ocean, uh, and it looked like an iceberg. So the tip of the plastic bag was sticking out of the, of the ocean, and the, the bottom of the plastic bag was in the ocean. And the caption on the cover said, plastic or planet. Um, and the whole magazine and the articles enclosed it, it gave a pretty good rendi- or a pretty good summation of, of why plastics was increasingly being used, but it did a really good job of, of showing how it's increasingly finding its way into the natural environment. And when I saw that cover, I really felt like it was time to move and really out of fear uh, that, you know, could our family business fail on my watch? And um, I, I didn't want that. So I started to try to educate myself in how we could change. Why did learning about sustainability feel so important to you? Have why? Why did it hit home so much? I wish I could say it was, you know, out of the goodness of my heart, <laughs> but I really felt like it came down to sort of this survival that if plastics uh, was increasingly going to come under scrutiny, what would our employees think? Would they want to work for a company that wasn't uh, being responsible in the in the uh, materials it put out there? What was our customers going to do? Were they going to look for different uh, things to to package their their products in. So it was more out of survival than it was anything and to try and de-risk the business. What are the kinds of things that you did to learn more about sustainability? Like what did you start looking into? Um, and what I did was the, the magazine actually did a really good job of saying, you know, here's some um, resources you can use to sort of move in a more sustainable direction. And it was really surrounded education. I, I, I took some educational courses on the circular economy. I applied to uh, the Harvard Executive Education Program on Sustainability Leadership. I actually got in. Uh, I spent a week there. It was a super, super program. So I did a bunch of educational things and did some travel to sustainability conferences to try and learn what, what others were doing and then try to mimic those in our, uh, in our business. about it. How did you go about convincing your family or your company or other stakeholders to make more sustainable changes to the company? It's a great question. And I actually got a, um, a boost from uh, regulation. So in New York State in 2019-2020, they instituted a, a bag ban law. So retail um, retailers couldn't hand out plastic bags anymore, especially in the grocery store. So you, you would have to bring your own bags. Um, so there was a bag ban in New York State. And while those weren't the bags that we made, 
it really provided me a great springboard to talk to our company and family members and whatnot to say, hey, look, the anti-plastic narrative is now forcing everyone to bring their own bags to the store. They're not handing them out anymore. It's going to continue to filter down to other things. So we got to get into different uh, products that we can make, different materials that we can use. So I think the regulation actually helped me in that. And I, th I also think the media attention given to plastics uh, did help us all, uh, that it became more uh, a transition mode. Like, how can we transition into some other materials? In reading your book, you had spent a lot of time talking about sort of the steps you took to convince your family, the people, your employees, your coworkers. Can you talk a little bit more about that as you're creating um, sort of this culture around sustainability and education and changes? I think a lot of times you hear the word sustainability or climate or protecting the environment, and it becomes a political issue. I think people begin to sort of shy away uh, and don't want to get into a political debate. So what I try to do is to have people look at the business from a stakeholder view. In every business, there's stakeholders interested in that business customers, supply chain, regulators, employees, the community, all of these are stakeholders interested in the business. And you look at your stakeholder view through surveys, interviews, things like that, you begin to realize that those stakeholders are interested in the business moving in a more sustainable direction. So I think when you give yourself some space to look at your business from that stakeholder view, it strips out the opinion. Um, it doesn't matter really what Trent thinks or Trent says. It's more what regulation is saying. What are our customers saying? What do our employees want? What does our supply chain want? And when you look at it from that view, I think that makes, it's not only an educational experience, but it, it strips away the opinion. Going with that, so what are some initiatives that you and your company took that benefited, you know, all the stakeholders? That I'd like to sort of touch dig a little bit deeper on two initiatives that we entertained. You know, we always hear these three R's, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce is the first one, right? So let's focus on the first one. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to reduce our internal waste by 25%. So when we make custom bags, we have waste. And we wasted uh, in 2019, 2020, 600,000 pounds of plastic in making the custom orders that we did. So we wanted to reduce our waste by 150,000 pounds. And I'll never forget when I asked our production manager, would we be able to uh, reduce our waste by 25%. And he paused and he said, well, it would force us to act in a different way. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what we need to do, right? We need to think about this in a different way. And we need to surround it with um, different ideas to try and reduce that waste. One of the things we did was we brought heightened awareness to waste within our company. Discovery Channel runs this uh, Shark Week. Uh, it, I pay attention to sharks, I think, once a year. It's in July when Discovery Channel runs this Shark Week where they have tons of programming on sharks during that one concentrated week. We took the same idea with waste. So we had Waste Week uh, at our company in June of that year where we dedicated a whole week to uh, lots of gaming around waste, educational sessions. We brought in speakers. Uh, we made up T-shirts. Uh, we had a food truck at the end. We sort of celebrated. We didn't celebrate waste, but we celebrated educating ourselves on waste to try and gain ideas from employees. But what it really did was it captured our, all of our employees that said, we can make a difference. We can make a difference in, in trying to achieve this goal. So I think that was a really good initiative for us to get a lot of people within our company 
on board. So that that was the first one we really drilled down. It's not something that I would have really thought of as most of the discussion, at least from a consumer standpoint, is focused around recycling or, you know, being able to reuse things. So it's really interesting that from a production standpoint, reducing is the one that you decided to target and focus on. And I think it was because it helped galvanize sort of our staff. Like they can participate in waste reduction. We put up a goal and we we showed it every week. You know, this is this is the goal. This is we're getting closer. We're changing some processes and procedures. And awareness is such a friend to progress. And it, it really did, really did help. And now you see our employees walking around with these Waste Week shirts. Um, so the awareness is a constant. So it really did help us train our employees, but also get their ideas. They know best how to reduce waste um, because they're doing it every day. Are there other economic factors that went into these uh, decisions that you made as well? Well, yeah, you bring up a really good point. When you talk about sustainability, it has to be good for stakeholders, but it also has to be good for the business, right? No company can act on pure philanthropy. So there's usually a business goal embedded in there. And I think the trick is to try and find those initiatives for each individual company that it's good for the stakeholders and it's good for the business. And when you find those, those are sort of the ones that you really dive into um, and and everybody wins. It's sort of a win-win. The other one I wanted to sort of touch on was we needed to have alternatives to fossil fuel-based plastic. So we vetted out 10 different materials and we put them through three criteria. First of all, any material that we got in that was more sustainable, we needed to be able to run it on our equipment. We need to be able to print it and then convert it on our bag-making machinery. We couldn't go out and buy a new printing press for one material, printing presses cost between two and three million dollars. A bag machine costs about two hundred thousand dollars. So we wanted to make sure the materials we got in could run on our equipment. Number two, we had to be able to get the material in case we ran out. In other words, if we ordered a couple thousand pounds of a material and we needed more of it, was it readily, readily available in the marketplace or with this vendor that we could continue to use it? And then the third criteria is it cost reasonably. So uh, raw material had to be, it couldn't be 10 times the cost. We couldn't sell something that's 10 times the cost. But if it was reasonably priced, it was something we wanted to uh, at least consider. So through that vetting process, it took about two years to find three new sustainable materials that we can, we continue to offer our, our customers. All three of those things definitely make sense. So what are the materials that you narrowed it down to? The first one uh, is a post-consumer recycled content material. So the material itself is made out of post-consumer waste. The second one is a bio-based material. So bio-based means material at the beginning of life is comes from plants um, instead of fossil fuels. And then the third material is a certified compostable material. So compostable material at the end of life fully degrades into compost. So those are the three materials we went with that fit those criteria, and I'm happy to report, I just found out yesterday that those three combined to be about 5% of our total sales at this point, which is a huge increase. Congratulations. That's really exciting. Uh, uh, We did a lot of double quoting, which means when somebody would send us an inquiry for a regular plastic bag, we would send them back a quote and say, oh, by the way, if you wanted this in a compostable material, we're happy to sample you. 
here is your price. And I think that helped us sell it. Diving a little bit deeper into that. So when you did the double quoting, when the customer made the decision, was it mostly for them? Like, how does it compare cost wise? Or was there some additional education that you had to do for your customers to help them sort of understand the impacts of that decision that they were making? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think most of the time when somebody calls and they say, oh, I want a sustainable alternative, I feel like telling them, do you want the 10 second answer? I really would like to give you the five minute answer because there's so much involved uh, in this. I think for most customers who are moving in a sustainable direction, it comes from their customer, right? So whether it be big business um, or, or something is driving it. So if you're servicing a brand that is marketing themselves like Patagonia, right? I, Patagonia wants a more sustainable material than, than regular plastic. So whoever your customer is, is probably driving the decision. And at the beginning of this, it was just to have options. Just so when somebody asked the question, you could easily get back to them and, and offer them some alternatives. You know, you had to be able to make these new materials on your existing equipment. How did you balance, you know, this experimental and taking downtime from your uh, production to to do this? Well, sometimes there's a high source of frustration and we had to keep going back to that stakeholder view, right? Or we operate in a state which has banned plastic bags. You know, the media is all over uh, an anti-plastic narrative. Our customers are asking for this. Our supply chain is asking for this. Our vendors is producing this. So when you sort of keep reminding people of those facts and those things, you know, we want to set ourselves up not for short-term success, but, you know, three, four, five years from now, we want to continue to grow. So it was sort of a reset a lot uh, to um, take a deep breath, understand why we're doing this, and then typically that helps. the biggest thing that you learned during this journey as you were trying to convert or, you know, shift your company more sustainable? Um, what is one takeaway that you want to share that maybe could inspire other people to go on a similar journey? That's a good question. I think sometimes there is a cost to inaction, meaning if you decide not to move in a more sustainable direction, be that in, in an environmental way with your materials or in a social way with with how you interact with your community or your employees, that is a choice, right? So there is a cost to inaction and that cost of inaction could be, you know, you may be throwing out materials that someone else would actually pay for. You may be not engaging in, in more sustainable materials, yet there's a market for it. So you're missing out on that market. Employees who are happier at work will stay longer. You know, there's, there's tons of support and studies for that. So how can I engage with my employees better to help them, you know, you want to retain the talent that you can. And then regulation, you want to stay ahead of regulation um, the best way you can. So I feel like there's a cost to inaction. So by doing nothing, that is a choice. And when you look at this bigger picture, um, I think there's a big business case to transition into a more sustainable mindset um, to sort of change the company over time. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, not saying anything is also saying something sort of thing. The key word to me is transition. I think if we're all transitioning the best way we can, you know, we have 70 families to feed. And, you know, if we said, oh, we're not going to run any more, you know, fossil fuel based plastic, those 70 families wouldn't have 
work, but we need to transition. And we're at 5% now, and I think it'll continue to grow. And I think for every industry, when you use the word transition, I think people feel a little bit more relaxed and they give themselves space to learn and space to move in this direction without feeling like somebody's coming after their business. And I think a lot more gets accomplished with that mindset. So I was really impressed with how quickly uh, you made these changes. So you, I think you started your sustainability journey in 2019? So 2018 was really the start. This, I'll tell you, I, there's that watershed event, which was that National Geographic cover in June of 2018. So it was probably July of 2018. I was like, okay, it's time to go. I'm really impressed with just how fast you decided to make those changes. Sometimes I see companies be like, well, um, 2030 or 2050 is when we'll make this percentage of a change. So just what motivated you to just go that hard into making as much change as possible? And does having a family operated company make that easier or does that drive the incentive more rather than a larger corporation, which feels like maybe it can take their time? Yeah, I think it's probably easier for the smaller company. And the companies that I interact with where I have the most success in trying to influence, it comes from the top. So when you are in a position to create a waste week and make it happen, you are in a position to say, hey, we got to reduce our waste by 25%. You know, when you're in a position to say, hey, look, we need to trial and error 10 different materials to try and come up with two or three. When it comes from the top, those things can happen quickly. When it comes from a committee that's uh, you know, in the top, maybe lukewarm about moving in that direction, uh, you're, you're sort of moving uphill uh, a little bit. But I think the more coverage, the more stories, the more reporting that's done, you know, what you are both doing with your, with your podcasts is awesome. These all lead people to begin to really think about sustainability in a different way. Could you tell us some of the challenges that you had to go through to get to where you are right now? Yeah, so I we I can go back to sort of the um, the materials thing was was hard because like you had um, hinted at, you know, there's a lot of time uh, dedicated to trialing these materials that we didn't have a buyer for, right? So. It was like, why are we trying this again? No one's asking for it um, because we're trying to get out uh, in front of it um, in terms of, of looking at this bigger picture. And that's why it's so important to sort of have your, the, the management team understanding what we're trying to do, because that helps you. Yes, you're going to fail, but you know what the bigger picture is uh, and you'll keep moving forward. Otherwise, I think a lot of these things get abandoned because they don't have that sort of ultimate support at the top. I also think it helps, you know, again, you get these other factors. What are the other factors potentially driving it? And I, I go back to those two major tailwinds, I'll say, that are helping. It's big business. If you go on any major brand, anyone, and you go on their homepage, I bet you you're going to find a sustainability link right off the homepage, and they're going to set, they, they have a sustainability report right there. And they are looking to partner in their supply chain with more sustainable companies, and they have to move in a more sustainable direction, and, and then regulation. So, so those two things are really pushing not only the narrative, but also the, the authentic actions that I think we all need to take. I did want to just ask if you could spend a few minutes just uh, describing your books. So the first book is called Finding Sustainability, 
when I began this journey in 2018, as I had mentioned, I traveled a bunch uh, to different conferences and whatnot, uh, different educational experiences. The book chronicles that journey. Um, what did I learn? Where did I go? And gives you the results uh, of that journey. So the second book came out of the first book. So the first book on the cover of it has a, a lone kayaker. Um, and so many people ask me, who is that on the cover? Is that you in the kayak? And I thought to myself, if I had written the book the way I wanted to, I was hoping the reader would see themselves as the one in the, uh, in the kayak with a journey to explore. So that's the evolution of this second book that I wanted to go back and made this the second one. This is our home is the name of it more about the reader. How can the reader overcome um, some anxiety and or uh, mountains of information um, uh, to act and to move in a more sustainable direction? So that second book is told through this story of my hometown. Uh, my hometown uh, is Nassau, New York. Just outside of Nassau, New York is a Superfund site. Uh, Superfund sites are um, places where the environmental degradation is so bad, it's on a national priority list for the government to clean it up. 22% of Americans live within three miles. There's a lot of these sites around America. So I grew up next to one, and it chronicles the story of how, how I felt about living next to one, the effects of it um, over the course of, of my childhood. And then I went back as an adult to revisit and see if those feelings are still, still there. Could you give us maybe a little preview of a couple of things that people could do in terms of increasing their sustainability or maybe a little snippet from uh, your second book? One of the ones, it's a, it's a tricky thing because I think people are always looking for that, that quick answer, but I'll, I think the book helps you realize it's a journey. That said, most people ask the question that you just asked, what can I do today or tomorrow? So I like to talk about B's and V's, two B's and three V's. The two B's are buy recycled content. When you buy recycled content packaging or clothing or material, you are pulling the demand through the system. So when I buy a recycled content polyester shirt from Patagonia, Patagonia has to go find recycled content polyester. And then they have to go through their supply chain and you're almost pulling that recycled content through the system. Second is the one we've heard a lot is buy regionally. So when you buy regionally or locally, you're cutting down transportation emissions. The third one is I get into the three V's. Value what you buy. Instead of buying, you know, three T-shirts that cost $10 each, you know, buy one you really, really like that may cost $20. The second V is verdict. You are the judge and jury of what you buy and what you dispose of. There's no one else. So when you sort of take control of that to say, hey, yeah, I am in control of what I'm buying and I am the one who's in control of how I dispose of this, you know, that idea of verdict uh, may change your um, what you're doing on a daily basis. And then the third V is volunteer. If you see something that is appealing to you, be it in your town or a movement or something, I think volunteering your time in some kind of sustainability effort uh, will help you learn more and, and continue to move in that direction. It makes you think about all of your actions from the beginning of what you're buying to what you're doing at the end. I, I love that. I had a question from the book because I thought it was really interesting. Can you speak about um, what feedback loops are and how you sort of use them? Yeah, so feedback loops are, um, a lot of times they feed on one another. Um, in other words, so 
when you put material out into the marketplace, um, say we put a compostable film out to a certain um, apparel company, and then they uh, they go to market with it, and then another company uh, sees that in the market, and then now they want it. So it turns into this positive feedback loop where you did one thing, and then it led to another, and it led to another, and it all sort of started to come back to you um, in a way that just continues positive cycle and the ball sort of begins to roll downhill. There's also those negative feedback loops, but you know, you're trying to create these ones that are positive. Um, so I guess was New York one of the first states to do the plastic ban? Um, I know New Jersey just started a couple of years ago, um, but how did you see sort of a change in how people behaved with plastic or did you see anything? Did you find that the environment looked different or anything like that? I, I think we all realized after the initial like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I can't bring my groceries home in this bag and then reuse it in my waste paper bin, right? Like, but once you got over that, I think people are like, no, we never, we, we don't need them, right? You know, just bring your own bags. I think people just got used to it and realized that it wasn't that big of a deal. But I think my fear of that uh, was sort of the halo effect that, you know, plastic bags are going to go away and we need to move in a different direction. But think about ice bags. How could you get ice on the move, right? You, I guess you could bring your cooler in and fill it up. But so I think there's certain applications where plastic isn't is the best alternative in in so many different ways. So I think there'll always be room for plastic. Now, what it's made of, be it it could be more of a bio-based material and whatnot. But I think I think people they just responded, uh, and I don't think it's a big deal. I had noticed um, watching people after the plastic ban in New Jersey. Now, like half the people don't use anything at all. They'll just carry it in yeah, their like hands a... or like reduce how much they're, I reduce how much I'm buying if I forget a bag. Cause I'm like, I can only take what I can carry. <laughs> right. It's yeah, like a it's Jenga really game. Hard. Could you, just a question for the two of you. Could you ever see yourself bringing in your own Mason jar, walking by a, uh, you know, a series of cylinders where you would, you know, you're going to buy your peanuts, your almonds, your walnuts. They're all in these cylinders and you are filling up your mason jar and bringing them to the counter. They get weighed there and that's how you get nuts instead of oh. a package. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I've actually prefer to use refill stores for uh, my uh, laundry detergent and um, things like that and soap and just bring our own containers for those things. So I don't know why that wouldn't be able to translate so there are a few stores in Albany that do, that do exactly that. They have not infiltrated, for lack of a better way of saying it, the the major grocers around here. That I I don't know if it's because consumer preference. I don't know. If it was close by, I would definitely do that. I just started um, getting milk in the glass jars. You know, the milk didn't taste as good as like the ones that I prefer in cartons, but. You know, once I got over that, I was like, it's nice to not have to throw away or like even recycle a carton. It was nice to just be able to give the glass bottle back and feel like I'm not making a ton of waste. So if if I could do that, I definitely would. So do you have a fun fact that you'd like to share? There's one that really drove the book for me. Packaging is expected to double in the next 20 years. When you say that and you think about that, you're like, wow. So we have to do something, right? And 
that really drove, it continued to drive my motivation to say, we need to, uh, more circular materials, whether that be investment in recycling or reusable, refillable uh, alternatives. But, you know, packaging is just going to start, you know, continue to get larger. So there's a huge need to look at all parts of the, the sort of circular uh, economy, circular way of thinking about things. Really quick, is there maybe a very specific sustainable practice that you do? I do the River Keeper, which is uh, along the Hudson River every year. And the River Keeper uh, does a great job. There is over 100 projects from New York City all the way up to the Adirondack Mountains. And the whole idea is to go to the river and pick up trash uh, that's around the river. Because you know if trash is near the river, it's probably going to get into the river. And if it gets into the river, it's flowing down into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but it's really neat being part of this uh, massive scale project. And I, it really got me thinking about volunteering. And I think that's important for everybody. And I think you always feel good when you volunteer. So um, I would encourage anybody to join the Riverkeeper if you uh, live near the Hudson River. Um, but if not, any kind of cleanup effort like that is always not only positive for the community, but it, it really does make you feel good. Yeah, and I think it's also nice to do some of these things with other people and get a sense of community and everyone participating to make the earth a little bit greener. To wrap up, we want to ask, is there anything you would like to share um, with the audience? Anything you want to pitch? My information and my current work is at www.trentromer, my name, T-R-E-N-T-R-O-M as in Mary, E-R, trentromer.com. The books and the course and, and my current work is is all there. Just wanted to thank you for your time um, and for reaching out. I really appreciate uh, all that you do. Awesome. Yeah, no, uh, we really appreciate your time as well. This has been a, a you know, very insightful conversation. Um, I think both of us have enjoyed your books and, and, and learning about your journey and sustainability. It's definitely something we want to see more people get involved in and more people, you know, take inspiration from stories like yours. So I'm really glad we were able to bring you on. Yeah, thanks, Trent. Thank you so much. If you ever need anything, let me know. This episode was edited and produced by Manali Banerjee and Nasreen Khan. Music is by Shang Young. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGTM Podcast, or you can email us at talkgreentomepodcast at gmail.com.